0: This is episode 128 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are survival uses of a tactical flashlight, prepping how much food is enough, and radiation sickness. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the Prepper website, podcast.com. Hey, before we get started, if, uh, if you're finding any value in the podcast, I'd really appreciate uh, you going over to iTunes and giving us a review, or maybe even Stitcher if you're listening uh, that way, or in whatever network you're using to, uh, to download the podcast. Um, that's always greatly appreciated. And uh, always appreciate when people come over to the prepper website podcast and share out our episodes and also our uh, just the main site uh, you know with in, through social media or email or you know uh, out there and, and letting your your friends and family and neighbors know that uh, you know it's a podcast that might be worth listening to so I uh, wanted to say that up front really appreciate those of you that uh, take the time to do that uh, it really helps out a lot Hey Ray, um, Ray left a, a, a comment on uh, yesterday's episode where we talked a little bit about Charlottesville. Actually, I think I talked a lot about Charlottesville, and uh, I left a lot of links there. Uh, so hopefully you went and checked out some of those and and uh, checked it out for yourself. Um, so he said he had heard some, he learned some things that he hadn't heard anywhere else uh, up until that point. I think there's still a lot of stuff coming out. Uh, I haven't been able to. I didn't spend a lot of time on Twitter today. Just you know, spent a lot of time at at work and taking care of things. Uh, uh, so I didn't have a lot of time after work. Uh, stayed late to take care of some things. I didn't have a lot of time to uh, to get into all of that. But I think there's still a lot of there's still a lot of craziness. Just a lot of craziness. Just going to the Drudge Report and uh, scrolling down, you, you'll see a bunch of just stupidity. But anyway. Uh, he also mentioned on the Facebook um, the Facebook group that uh, Jack Spirko had a great podcast you know referring to those things that are going on over there so uh, I you know I I, li- I used to listen to Jack uh, religiously um, but I mean since you know all the preparedness and I would listen to all the the, the other prepared there's a lot of other preparedness uh, podcasts that I would listen to as well but I just you know, I started listening to other podcasts as well, you know, leadership and a lot of, uh, you know, there's messages and sermons and things that I listen to and and uh, educational things that I listen to, just a history podcast that I like to listen to. And uh, so I don't always catch all of them, but I, I usually peruse, you know, what's going on and if there's something, that a title that catches my interest, uh, I will click on it and see what it's about and then download it. Uh, this one was, uh, I believe, yesterday's, and so Ray was pointing that out and, um I always like when when uh, Jack gives analysis. So you know his analysis. Uh, uh, I like to hear his thoughts and his opinions. Um, and uh, most of the time, I mean, you know, I, I pretty much line up with where he's going. Uh, and he's always, you know, sharing insight that uh, you know thinking outside the box sometimes and and always expanding on ways that you might not have thought of. So I got about halfway through that podcast. It's really really good. Uh, so I'm gonna recommend it to you. Uh, I always like Jack. Like again, his uh, when he does the analysis stuff, um, and then his small business. Uh, the reason the reason I even went to uh, doing a five day podcast on this because people are like Todd, you're crazy, you're gonna be worn out. And to be honest, sometimes I am. I am worn out uh, tonight. I'm drinking coffee as I'm as I'm doing this one because it's been a long day. Uh, you know, with the foot and everything, it's uh, just kind of been a real long day. But um, you know, one of the things that he had mentioned on one of his uh, like business podcasts, are, or one of the the business episodes, right, was if you're going to do a podcast, you, you know, you need to make sure you're doing it five days a week or something to along those lines. I just it just registered with me that you got to do it you know, on a consistent basis, uh, and so that's that's why I decided to do it, uh, have a daily podcast, you know, to get out there. And and you know what, since February, it has grown. Um, it, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with the way that it's grown. Um, if I was just doing a podcast and you know my mom and Uncle Ted were, were uh, you know listening to it and that was it, I I wouldn't have gotten this far <laughs> definitely. So again, that's why I say I appreciate all the listeners and all the feedback that I get. Uh, that really kind of it, it does help me to keep going. That I know that people are listening and I see the um, the stats and all that kind of stuff. So I see the the way that it's growing. Uh, I really do appreciate that, but you know, I'll I'll uh, go back and and give the kudos to Jack on that about doing it for uh, for five days. But anyway, his episode is episode 2065. So uh, if you haven't listened to the to su- the survival podcast uh, recently, uh, or you know you you might not have that in your in your downloads, you might want to go check that one out. And uh, so I'm going to link to that one in uh, the description. And uh, like I said, I've I've gone I've gotten about halfway through it. haven't finished it yet, but uh, it's uh, turning out to be a really good one, so uh, you might want to go check that one out. All right, so let's go ahead and move into our first article of the podcast. This one's coming to us from survivingprepper.com, and uh, the title is Survival Uses of a Tactical Flashlight, and I'm going to be real honest. This is a short uh, article, which is good because uh, the next one's like super long, but uh, the the reason I'm doing this one is... I was one of those guys that uh, really wasn't into all the flashlights. I know that there's some people out there that's like, "Hey man, I got every flashlight you can think of, blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff." I never really was into that. It was like, I want a flashlight that I can turn on, that I can see when it's dark, and uh, wasn't into the tactical stuff. I, I just passed it off as something that was, you know, extra that you really didn't need. Uh, and then, and then I wound up buying one. And, uh, you know, one of the cheaper ones, and then I bought, uh, I, I saw how much it illuminated. Then I bought one of the, you know, a better one and a better one. And uh, I finally, I purchased one like for my dad and purchased a couple of extra ones for around the house. And they're just so, uh, so useful and uh, so powerful um there's so many anyway uh let's just go ahead and get into the (laughs) the article i'm I'm gonna go ahead and just kind of give you the article without giving you the article anyway uh let's go ahead and get into this one the differences between a regular flashlight and a tactical flashlight regular flashlights provide illumination which is helpful when you are in a dark place without sufficient lighting but tactical flashlights offer more they have a stronger light intensity and lightweight but more solid construction Most are made of non-corrosive, waterproof, shockproof material to extend durability and lifespan. And they often have serrated or tooth bezels which help you counter attack any threats. To say that your normal city life doesn't need a tactical flashlight is wrong. No one knows what the future holds, blackouts, brownouts, dimly lit streets. You don't have to be a hunter or a policeman or a soldier to benefit from the use of a tactical flashlight. A tactical flashlight will come in handy to anyone in the world. 3 Survival Uses of a Tactical Flashlight A tactical flashlight is versatile and useful in many scenarios. Use your tactical flashlight to number 1. Confuse the attacker Blind him with a super bright light. This will disorient him, leaving you time to hide, run, or draw your weapon. Even some wild animals will withdraw with such a shot. Be careful when applying this tactic, only use it against people who are a real threat and approaching with anger or serious aggression. You don't want to blind an innocent person like a child or your neighbor in a terrible misunderstanding. Number 2. Become an extra light support for shooting in the dark. Your gun is a powerful self-defense tool, but if you can't see your target, then your gun is useless. Scope manufacturers create night vision scopes and weapon mounted lights. However, both of those accessories have disadvantages. Night vision scopes don't help when the surroundings are too dark and the weapon mounted lights cause users to point the gun at the target with chances of unintentional firing. This is why many people love using a police flashlight as an extra source of light for shooting in low light conditions. It provides more light so that you will have a quick, quicker target acquisition and it's clearer and sharper resulting in more accurate shots. Night vision scopes if aided by an extra flashlight will be more precise and effective. You can hold your gun in one hand and the light on the, in the other. The approach, this approach allows you to adjust your vision without pointing the muzzle at the target. This prevents you from unintentional shooting or causing harm to other people. When you need to hold the rifle with both hands, you can turn it into a weapon mounted light. Many police flashlight models have an attachable part to be easily attached to the barrel of the gun. The attach-detach process is quick and easy. If you are shooting with a semi-automatic rifle such as an AR-15 or AK-47, a police flashlight can be more useful. Those guns are made for close combat so people often don't mount a powerful night vision scope on it. These sights are too heavy and bulky. Instead, a red dot sight is more effective for an AR-15 but with red dot sights, your vision in the dark is very limited. Thus, attaching a flashlight onto the rifle is an optimal idea. Extra light, extra vision and the same convenience Those are wonderful features of an AR-15 if combining with a good AR-15 bipod. Your shooting will be more accurate and consistent even in a dark forest. Number three, start a fire. This is not its primary purpose, but you can make a fire with a tactical flashlight. There is more than one way to do this. Method one. This method is the most guaranteed way to start a fire with a flashlight. Firstly, you need to remove the head and the protecting glass. Then break the bulb be careful in this step because you don't want to break the whole bulb you want to break the outer glass which leaves the filament untouched next put tinder, light paper or hair in and switch the light on after some seconds you will have a tactical firing match to start a bigger fire method two this method is only available during daytime especially when there is a blazing sunshine take out the protecting glass on top of the flashlight hold it in the air between the sun and the tinder. Then wait for a couple of minutes for the sunshine it, For the sunshine is converged and burned to burn the tinder. Method 3. This solution is only available with some specific tactical flashlights. Some models are designed to emit an intense light that is able to burn flammable materials nearby. Just turn that mode on and shove your light near the tinder. Bonus. The right way to hold a flashlight alongside your gun. As I said, a tactical flashlight is a good alternative to a weapon mounted light, but how to hold it to secure accurate shots and safety? My answer, the right way to hold a flashlight in a gun are the eye index technique. There are many ways to do that and you will see them often in the movies, but the most effective one is rarely seen in cinematic scenes. First, hold the flashlight with your non-dominant hand, then put it beside your head at the same level with your, with your eyes. Second, hold the pistol in your dominant hand and stretch it out. This technique allows you to see both the target and your gun sights. It also it's also more secure because you don't point the gun at the target. If you have owned one, take a look at our if you have owned one, take a look at our quality picks for a good police maybe it said maybe it was supposed to say if you haven't owned one, take a look at our quality picks for a good police flashlight. Three survival uses of a tactical flashlight above have proven its importance. It isn't an item in your everyday carry kit. It can be your lifesaver when chances come. So check for the flashlight every time you go out. Also remember to recharge it at home, creating a habit of this will ensure your safety and convenience. So this was a, a guest post from Shooting Mystery. Alright, so I don't like um, I like the number one, confusing an attacker or um, you know it, at night you turn that sucker on and if it's a, a decent flashlight, even you, you can get like a a thirty dollar one, right? Uh, thirty forty dollar one, and it will be so bright that it will blind someone, uh, you know, it, at night if you shine it right in in their face. So uh, I I totally believe that, and that's one of the most I I think one of the most effective uses, right, for that flashlight. One of the reasons why you'll want to carry one of those, um, the extra light support uh, when you're shooting in the dark. Okay. I don't like the starting a fire thing because you're 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 tearing apart like method one. You're tearing apart the flashlight, and why why even do that? I mean, I guess if you're in like in a desperate survival scenario, you would wind up doing that. Um, I think the um, one of the things that you'll see is when you go when you start looking for tactical flashlights, uh, like going to Amazon, you'll see the bevel and uh, the author here of this of this article does bring that up at the very beginning uh the bevels are you know they're they they have those uh let me go back to where it says here yeah that serrated or tooth bezel uh which you know if someone was up against you and you could kind of stick it into them and uh, it caused a little bit more pain than just a a regular uh flashlight would i think that would be that probably should have been number three instead of you know start a fire or whatever but uh, if you if you're one of those people that that's like, I don't need a tactical flashlight, that's a bunch of crap, go go look it up. I mean, i'll just I'll just tell you, there's you can find deals. i uh, I found one a great deal. Uh, and uh, it came, um, I can't remember the the name of it, but it came in a box. Uh, it had two rechargeable batteries in it. It had the the charger for the battery that you can charge it, you know, in the wall socket, or you could charge it. Uh, you know, with a 12-volt battery or 12 volts, you know, in your car or whatever. It was a super powerful, uh, super powerful flashlight. I went to go buy a second one after I got it, and I I couldn't, you couldn't find them anymore. They're just, they weren't available. Um, And so I bought like the next one down for my dad, and uh, he's just mentioning, he's taking it up to the country. He's like, man, it's so powerful. You can... You can shine it on the woods from from uh, from you know where they're where we're building the, the, the house and you can it just lights up the whole woods. I mean it's just so powerful, and uh, so he's a he's a big believer in that one. You know if uh, I have one by my nightstand, and so in, if for whatever reason we have to turn on the light or we drop something or whatever, I can just turn that sucker on and I just flip it around and and just let it you know stand up on the nightstand. It lights up the whole room. Um, it's They're just so bright. So if you're one of those who's never really looked into it, I'm just going to challenge you uh, with this article and then, you know, go find one. Um, Mark over at Surviving Prepper, you know, has a link over, uh, I guess this is uh, Ghost Vapor. It's only 11.95. It is 4.5 stars and 102 reviews. So, you know, that might be a good one to start out with. Uh, a lot of the times the cheaper ones don't have, don't come with the... Um, with the batteries and all those kinds of things, but, uh, you know, spend a little bit more, you can get the rechargeable battery. Um, you can get multiple charging, you know, rechargeable batteries. And I mean, there's just, you know, there's a lot that you can do with it. But anyway, uh, again, uh, if you don't have the tactical flashlight, you know, go, go, uh, go get one and just see, uh, see the difference. I think it's pretty powerful. All right. So the next one is going to, uh, it's a little bit longer one, uh, it comes from the thesurvivalistblog.net. Now, I know there's a, there's a lot of people that are new to prepping, and even people that have been prepping for a while, listening to the podcast. And this is going to be talking about, I guess, a way to, it's not just food. We're not just talking about food here, or this article is not just handling that. It's handling inventory as well. And so uh, uh, I think there's some good uh, advice here. So I'm going to go ahead and get into this one over at the thesurvivalistblog.net. The article is entitled, Prepping How Much Food is Enough, and it's updated for 2017. So I guess um, this is uh, an updated version of an article. All right, here's the deal. We all come to this journey our own way. For me, I started in gardening, then moved to homesteading. And on one of the homesteading sites, I got introduced into prepping. I will be the first to tell you that I'm not a prepper. I consider myself more of a homesteader with prepper tendencies. As such, this article will probably reflect some of those thought processes. When I started down this road, I kept looking for blog posts or videos that would tell me I needed to store X number of whatever item. No matter how hard I looked, I could never find what I was actually looking for. Then it finally dawned on me I'm looking for the answer in the wrong place in the wrong form. If you have spent or will spend any time on prepper, or survivalist type websites, you will see a phrase that comes up time and time again, store what you eat, eat what you store. I don't know who coined the phrase but it is exactly true. Let's however take it to the next level. Not only should you only store what you eat, you should also only store what you use. Don't buy something just because it's on sale, especially if you know you will never use it. Most things have to be rotated to maintain their freshness or usefulness, like batteries. If you're not using it, then it's kind of hard to rotate it. I could tell you that you need to store 600 pounds of rice, but I wouldn't be doing you any good in saying that. So instead, I'd like to use this article to help you figure out what you need to store for your situation. Maybe you don't like rice, so storing 600 600 pounds would be a waste. What's the bottom line? I will say this. This article is not going to be the magic bullet all by itself. You will have to put in the work, but I can promise you it will be time well spent for your future peace of mind. I am also going to use this article to teach you how to figure out what you need for a year's supply. Let's go back to the 600 pounds of rice. Do you like rice? Do you know how much rice you normally eat? Do you know how much rice it takes to make a serving? To further this rice discussion, I'll use myself and what I have found that works for me. I have decided that for me, a serving is 3 fourths cups of, of rice. And I can fit 5 servings into a quart mason jar. There are about 2.5 cups of rice in a 1 pound bag. That would give me around 3.33 servings per 1 pound bag. Now, I have a baseline to work from. Let's assume that if and or when the SHTF, you don't really want to upset your culinary apple cart. You want to hopefully have that aspect of your life somewhat intact. Currently, you eat rice 3 times a week. With that in mind, you'd need three servings a week or one pound of rice. To continue that menu for a full year, you'd need 52 pounds of rice put back. Granted, this will give you a little extra because you can actually get 3.33 servings out of a pound of rice. Now that 52 pounds are just for one person. If you have a family of four, then you need to store 208 pounds of rice to maintain your three meals a week routine. I'd also be willing to wager that you don't particularly like just plain rice. Me personally, I like to dress mine up with either chicken, beef or ham. So with that in mind, I'd need 52 pint jars of each of those to go with my rice for the meal. A pint jar can hold about a pound of meat. I can say this, with 3 fourths cup of rice and a pound of chicken, you could actually feed two people. They won't be busting at the seams full, but they won't be hungry anymore. My best advice would be to make the meal and see how you and your family do on that ration. What about spices and salt? You need to figure out what you like and then how much you use per recipe. Using the three meals of rice per week, we have figured out that we need 52 pounds of rice, 52 jars of chicken, 52 jars of beef, and 52 jars of ham. This will feed one to two people each day for the meal. What are you going to eat the other four days of the week? or the other meals or two in the day. Look, what I'm trying to show you is how to figure out what you need to store by making a menu of what you like to eat and that is easily stored. When I say easily stored, I don't mean just rice and beans. There is very little that can't be canned or dehydrated for easy storage. Have you thought about canning up your own meals? It could either be a dehydrated meal in a jar or something fresh like chili, soup, or something else. Just think. If there are only a couple of people you're trying to feed, a quart jar of chili would fit the bill for a meal. If you're doing chili one day a week, then 52 quarts of chili would last you a year. The key is to figure out a menu that you can live with and then figure out what it will take to create that menu for a year or whatever time frame you decide on. Now that you have a menu, you have your goals for what you need to store and you can work towards those goals. There is nothing that says you have to eat rice and beans the whole time. Maybe you want to mix it up and have a two week revolving menu. Basically have something different every day for two weeks then start over again. The choice is yours and is up to you and your family on what you like to eat. One of the websites I visited took the revolving menu to a new level. Instead of just staying with those 14 meals they had theirs set up for a 10 or 12 meal menu. Once or twice a week they had an open day to try new recipes. Sometimes it was completely new, and sometimes it was utilizing their stockpiles in a new way to create something different. Those extra days will give you a chance to experiment and not become bored with the menu. If you try, if you you're trying new things with your stockpiles, then you never you're really off course. That extra day also added some spice to the weekly meals. Maybe in an SHTF scenario, you can't have lamb chops or whatever else you really like, but why not indulge in them while you can? As I mentioned above, another reason for creating a menu is to see what you need to have in your food preps. How many meals use salt? Do you know how much salt it will take to create just one meal for a year? What about using salt after the meal is cooked? By having your recipe printed out and placed in a binder, not only will you be helping yourself, but you'll be helping others that may be going through a situation with you. With those recipes printed out, even if it's something you came up with in your head, you will be able to sit down and calculate just how much of a single ingredient you need to prepare that meal for a year or whatever time frame you're shooting for. It would also help someone else prepare the meal if you happen to be injured or engaged in another task when it came time to cook the meal. With the recipe printed out, then no matter who cooks it, it will come out somewhat the same providing they don't burn it This will most likely help with the overall morale of the folks in your group. It will be one less thing that changes when everything else around them is going to crap. Now, you can see why I started at the beginning of this article that this article is not going to be the magic bullet by itself. You will have to put in the work, but I can promise you it will be time well spent for your future peace of mind. Hopefully, this will give you some idea on how to figure out what you need to store for your food preps. Each and every one is different. What I store, is what I store. you may not like, and vice versa. It gets better. Let's move from food to other home goods that we use. When I started doing this, it was an eye-opener to me. Do you actually know how long your bar of soap lasts? What about the stick of deodorant? How about the tube of toothpaste or that roll of toilet paper? Have you thought about how long it takes your cat or dog to go through a bag of food? What about kitty litter or flea collars? All of these things will dictate how much you need to store. When I started trying to store extra of the things mentioned above, I used a baseline of one item per month, not including the TP. Then I actually started tracking my usage and found some things that were off, some for the good and some for the bad. Here are some of the things that I found when I started tracking my usage. Of course, this is just a baseline for you because your mileage may vary. Let's start with our lovable pets first. I had figured I could manage a month on a 50-pound bag of food. I was wrong. I actually went through that bag in about 25 days. That info is nice to have because now I know I don't have as much stored up as I thought. As for my kitty, she's still going strong on a 6.3-pound bag of food. It's been a month and nine days and she might have about a week's worth left. So I can figure about a month and a half on her food. As for a bar of soap, that all depends on the variety of soap you use. I have found that a bar of Dove lasts longer than Irish Spring or Lever 2000, or Lever 2000, I guess. I can get around a month and a half out of a bar of Dove and, in my opinion, is a better soap than the other two. My remaining Irish Spring and Lever 2000 will be set aside for barter if the need arises. I'll fill up my stores with Dove. Keep in mind, if you have more than one person using that bar, You'll have to divide the time down according to the number of folks using it or you could take the easy way out and say a bar of Dove per person per month. Just like the soap, the size of your deodorant plays a factor in how long it will last. When I initially started, I made the assumption that a stick would last a month. Well, I was right and I was wrong. If I'm using the 2.7 ounce stick of Degree, I can make it just barely over a month. However, if I'm using a 2.6 ounce stick of Sure, I'm a little under a month. That just goes to show you that you really need to figure out how long whatever you use lasts. If I would have stayed with the assumption that 12 sticks of sure would have lasted me a year, then at some point before that year was up, I'd be a little stinky. While I currently don't know how long a tube of toothpaste or shampoo will last, it won't be long and I'll be tracking them due to opening up a new one. Put this thought process towards everything you use on a daily or weekly basis. Do you plan on washing dishes? How long does your bottle of dish soap last? What about that box of laundry detergent? How long does a bottle of toilet paper cleaner last? Why toilet bowl, sorry, toilet bowl cleaner last? Why am I harping on cleanliness? Let's think about this for a moment. There are a myriad of reasons we prep. Like most of us, I'm not concerned about just one event. I am thinking about multiples that could happen. In my opinion, the most likely are a financial collapse which will eventually lead to a societal collapse both of which will end up with martial law and a possible second civil war. In either case, uncleanliness leads to disease and sicknesses, and we really don't want to face that possibility when it might be hard or impossible to get to medical care. If the S really does hit the fan, then we, we have enough to worry about. Why not plan for ways to help keep yourself from getting sick in the first place? An infected cut could be very dangerous when there is no medical care available. You are storing basic medical supplies, aren't you? At some point during this journey, your preps will grow to the point that you may not remember how much of a particular item you have compared to your goals for that item. This is where an inventory plan will come in handy. This is something I have been working on and I think I have it finally figured out. I utilize two different types of inventory methods. To start off with, let's assume that you have decided you need 96 cans of corn for your yearly meal plan. Considering that you should already be rotating your stockpiles, how do you keep track of the cans that are on the shelf without having to physically take the time to count each and every one every time you do an inventory? The simplest way I learned was from another site. I can't take credit for this one. Take a piece of graph paper and make a column on the left-hand side. Make it wide enough so that you can list your supplies. Then for each and every can you have in a stock, make a forward slash mark in the graph squares. You'll want to leave several lines between the various suppliers. Then once you remove a can from the shelf, convert the forward slash on the far left to an X. Whenever you add to your supplies, just add more forward slashes on down the line. Now you can see at a glance by a quick count of the forward slashes, how many of a particular item you have on hand. If you keep these inventory forms hanging from a clipboard in your pantry or storeroom, it won't take long at all to keep it up to date. If you're storing home canned goods or vacuum sealed jars you really should check the seals once a month. I've had some jars that were sealed with oxygen absorbers lose their seal after a while. Thankfully I was able to catch them pretty quick and properly vacuum seal them with the food saver and a jar attachment these were done before i got that wonderful device as such i am physically pressing down on each lid as such i am physically pressing down on each lid and i can count every jar of a particular item at that time if i didn't want to keep a running total of the graph paper i could always update the sheets once a month you just have to figure out what works best for you in your situation the other inventory method i use is a custom sheet i made up in my spreadsheet program it is used for those items that i don't want or it would be impossible to track each and every item using the graph paper method. This sheet is still a work in progress, but I'll give you the basics behind it. Maybe you can give me ideas to finish it out and make it better. The column on the left that has the item I am tracking and along the top I have the month and year as a header for each additional column. Then each month I just write down the quantity of the item on the left in the appropriate month year column. So far, I am using this type of inventory form for my ammo reloading supplies. Can you imagine using the graph paper method to track each and every bullet in a three, three bricks of 22 long rifle? You'll, you'd be marking hash marks for a very long time. This sheet works out pretty well, but I am trying to come up with a way to improve it. In any given month, I may purchase more ammo, shoot some ammo, or reload some ammo, or all of the above. As of current, this takes another sheet to keep track of the amounts of hand on hand in order to accurately update the main inventory form. I would love to figure out a way to merge the two. As it stands, my main inventory form will allow me to keep track of 10 months worth of numbers on a single page. If I was just counting cans of stuff or rolls of toilet paper, this sheet would be great for a monthly inventory sheet. But when you're counting loose rounds, it's best to only do a major count once, then have a form to add and subtract, as needed, each month. I have found that these two methods of inventorying my supplies work best for me, until, of course, I find a better way. They are easy to keep up with, and for the most part, you can tell at a glance how much of an item you have on hand. I know that there will will be some that say I don't need inventory forms. I have a good memory. All I can say is must be nice. Seriously, though, think about this. Let's say you have five different calibers of weapons and your initial goal is 500 rounds for each weapon. You've got 320 rounds of your AR, 525 rounds for your 12 gauge, 480 rounds for your 45, 1575 rounds for your 22 long rifle, and 489 rounds of your 30 odd 6. Thanks to a recent target practice round, Having the inventory forms would make it easy for you to see how many boxes of what caliber you need to buy with the funds available to work your way back up to your goals. There will be no guessing and your money will be best spent where it is needed. Maybe your 06 is close enough and you'd rather spend your funds to help bring up the number of your AR. With the inventory form, you can make an informed decision about your purchase. The same goes for any other item that you're tracking. Let's go back to some of what we have discussed so far in this article. I know I want to have a year's supply on hand, so the inventory form in the supplies column, I'll have something that looks like this. Deodorant, 14 sticks. Dove soap, 8 bars. Dog food, 15 sacks. You get the idea. So now when when it comes time to make out my shopping list, I can use my inventory form instead of physically going and counting my supplies each time I want to go shopping to help create my list. I can see from the forward slash marks that I'm two bars shy of my goal for soap or I'm actually over on the amount of deodorant I need thanks to a recent sale and extra extra being purchased last time. With time, inventorying your supplies will make your life and shopping list easier. There will be no more guesswork and spending money on things that you really didn't need to complete your goals. I know I'm getting long winded so I'll try to cover this next section quickly. The last thing that I feel is crucial to how much you need to store is your resupply plan. I don't mean to step on any toes, but with this next statement, I fear there is no way around it. Most preppers won't survive a long-term event. Now, quit hollering at the computer monitor, I can't hear you. Before you break out the rope to string me up, hear me out. From a lot of the videos I have watched on YouTube and some of the websites I have visited, most think that if they have cases upon cases of whatever, they will be good to go. Their plan is to write out the event and then restock once it's over. For most things, that's a pretty good plan, and you'd be better be up, you'd be better off than 90% of the population. But what if the event turns out to be like Syria? Their civil war has been going on for two, over two and a half years now, and there really doesn't seem to be an end in sight. Your cases upon cases will only last for as long, and if we are in the middle of a civil war, they do then do you, realize, do you really think you'll be able to get more cases from your favorite freeze-dried or dehydrated food supplier? If this country ends up going to war with itself, then there is no doubt in my mind that it will be a long-drawn-out ordeal. The feds aren't going to give up power easily, just like the Syrian government isn't giving up easily. Besides, isn't that what, what prepping is all about? Trying to prepare for the worst. Aside from nukes on our own soil or an EMP that puts us back to in the stone age, the worst thing I can fathom is a civil war. It will be ugly and drawn out. Thus, you need to have a resupply plan. I've had folks tell me I have several seed vaults and I'll just plant a garden when the SHTF. Well, I hope you're, you like being hungry. There is a definite learning curve to gardening successfully, especially if that gardening is successfully it entails having to completely feed you and your family. Yes, there are some that have a green thumb, but for the majority of us, it is a learned skill, just like anything else. This is why I consider myself a homesteader with proper tendencies. My main goal in life are not to amass cases upon cases of whatever product. My main goal is to become self-sufficient so I don't have to rely on products from other locations to survive. Some will say I live in the Great White North or in a subdivision, so I can't homestead horse hockey i'll give you the knowledge you you need to stu- 'm sorry i'll give you the knowledge you need to start your research and prove that you can do it for those of you that have a small backyard and think they can't make a difference in their self sufficiency i'd like you to do a little research on the Dervais family in California. They have a one tenth acre of a lot and they produce seven thousand pounds of organic produce annually as of 2010. Some of the ways they achieve this is through succession planting and square foot gardening. They also utilize vertical gardening to reach the lot's full potential. Here's a short 15 minute video on YouTube showing their urban homestead. It's an inspirational video and worth your time. For those that live in the great white north that think they can't raise a garden that will provide food all year long, I've got news for you. You can. Elliot Coleman, lives up in Vermont and raises food year-round in his garden. He is the pioneer of the four-season garden and you can find his book, Four-Season Harvest Organic Vegetables from Your Home Garden All Year Long, on Amazon. It is chock full of good practical information to help you become more self-sufficient by raising your own garden produce even in the dead of winter. Guess what I am trying to say is this. Formulate a resupply plan and then stock up in bulk on those things you cannot grow or produce yourself that will save you space and money plus ensure that you have food when you really need it even if you're not able to completely feed yourself or your family on what you can grow every little bit helps if you start gardening now or raising chickens and rabbits you might be surprised at how much you can grow when the time comes one last thing to think about and then I'll hush if it gets south if it I'm sorry if it goes south here are a couple of items you may not have thought about stocking up Hiking boots and leather gloves. Considering the Syrian civil war is moving towards three years, I'd have at least three pairs in reserve. If you're staying home to either protect the fort or out doing manual labor, trying to provide for your family, then you're going to go through some footwear. You don't want to be without when, you're really, when you really need them. If you're not used to manual labor, gloves can save your hands. After 15 minutes of hoeing my corn this spring, I had blisters, so they are worth the investment. Ziploc bags. If you have a plan to share with others in need, you need to have a supply of Ziploc bags on hand. You don't want to hand them a Mylar bag of goodies. This just screams, I have a stockpile. Instead, have them wait outside and transfer the goodies into a Ziploc bag. That way it looks like you're sharing what little bit you do have. Blank paper. Paper can be used for all sorts of things, but have you thought about using it as a safety signal? Let's say half your group goes out to hunt or patrol. The half left at home is faced with a fight or flee situation, and they decide it's safer to flee and regroup to take the house back. On your way out, grab a piece of paper and wad it up and throw on the ground. Then the returning party can scope all the entrances to the house upon returning. If they see paper, then they know to meet at a predetermined area. This way, they are not walking to a bad situation. If the raiding party picks up the paper, they are most likely to toss it back down because there will be nothing on it to interest them. In closing, I hope that I have given you some things to think about when it comes to figuring out what and how much you need to store. If you've got any tips on figuring out what and how much to store, or how you track your inventory, then please share down in the comments below. Thanks for taking the time to read my long-winded ramblings. Authors edit. I'd written this and decided to mull it over for a couple of days to see if there was anything I wanted to add or change. During that time, I came up with a new way of inventory my to inventory my ammo and reloading supplies. I have included a graphic so maybe it will help others. Instead of being able to log ten months worth of data, I am able to log six months, but I get everything on one page. I use the number and calibers from the article for your graphic. For the graphic, you don't think I'd actually show you what I have, do you? All right. So, uh this is over at uh, m d Creek moor's the survivalist uh, blog so you know he's got a big community over there, and uh, I think there's like sixty comments um, yeah I think like sixty four comments that you can go and people you know adding advice and stuff like that. I think having an inventory is is um a, a great plan because when you have it you know what you have. And the idea of having menus, uh, you know, when my wife and I ran the group home for kids in, in CPS custody, we did that for about 11 and a half years. Um, so we had, uh, it was my wife and I, our, our three kids, our three kids were, were born and, and raised in a lot of that. Uh, and then we had anywhere between four to seven kids living with us at, at any given time, so, uh, we started out with all boys, then we went to uh you know boys and girls' home. It was a co ed home and then we finally went to all girls home and um you know with all those people there you you couldn't Well, it wasn't smart it, it wasn't smart. To just say, hey, what are we going to eat tonight? And you run out to the store. And there were uh, there were people, group home parents in our community that would do that. That they would go to the store every single day. And that just wasn't smart. You know, we realized early on that we needed to have a menu. Uh, we created a menu, a monthly menu. We would run out. To Sam's, we would stock up at Sam's. We would stock up, uh, go to the grocery store, and uh, you know, if we went to the grocery store, it was for stuff like bread and uh, fresh fruit and vegetables and milk. You know, those kinds of things, eggs, that kind of stuff. So maybe we would do that, you know, twice twice a month or whatever, once a week if we if we needed it. But uh, we realized that having the menu was was important because you already knew what you were going. There was no time in, in, in trying to decide what you were going to cook uh, you you had everything there uh, and so you know it was ready to go and so when you start applying that to your preparedness right into your to your menu of uh, the way that you're living I think that's a, that's a great way to go and uh, like you was talking about here even if you're not going to uh, actively eat all of this you know let's just say you do want to put away uh, a month's worth of food. You can make a menu, you know, five uh, five different you know um, dinners or whatever, and just replicate those uh, six times, you know, to have uh, dinners for for a whole uh, for a whole month, and you know you can work off of it that way. Uh, but I like this idea of m- kind of measuring everything out, having a, an idea. It takes a little bit of time up front to do this. But when you do it, then you have a good idea of what you really need. Because I think a lot of people are just like, I'm just stocking up, I'm adding here, I'm adding there. And then when the poop hits the fan, it's like you think you have all this extra amount of stuff and you really don't. And then you're kind of stuck out. You know, you think you have, uh, you know, uh, a year's worth of toilet paper and you have three months worth of toilet paper. And that's going to be, that's not going to be fun. Uh, so, anyway, uh, good ideas here. I like the inventory, the way of uh, keeping it uh you know on that clipboard it makes it so simple with the forward slashes and then you can like if if you take a a can of corn out well then you can exit out and you know you need to buy a can of corn um and it makes it so simple the same idea with uh items that are not food items right the soap and and uh even the ammo and stuff like that it helps you to identify a little bit better what you need to uh, what you need to put your money towards and spend your money on uh, so you're not just you know filling up one side and, and, and neglecting everything else the only thing is that you have to be disciplined you're not going to be able to do this if you're not disciplined you got to be disciplined you got to stay on top of it uh, but I, I believe that it, it will pay off just like having a budget uh, a monthly budget and knowing where your money is going and telling your money where to go and all that good stuff uh it's it's definitely is worth it. It's it you got to be disciplined, you got to sit down, you got to do it, but it it pays off. So go check out the survivalistblog.net. Um go check out this article. I'm going to link to it like always. There's links that you can go check out and then of course, uh you want to spend some time in the comment section, all right? A lot of good information here. So like I said, it was long, but I think it's a good one and hopefully if you're new to preparedness, it will help you out. Uh, start small, all right? Don't 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 tackle everything that you're going to need for for the apocalypse, uh, you know, in one day. Start small, start a menu, or start a, a small menu, and uh, get a couple of, of recipes going and measuring those out and start adding to it, you know, and, and go from there. All right, <clears throat> moving on to our next article from uh, two of my favorite people in preparedness, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy over at doomandbloom.net. Uh, This is going to be on radiation sickness, so we have some good information here that uh, I definitely want to pass along to you. So let's go ahead and get started on this one. Many consider a nuclear attack an outlandish scenario to which only conspiracy theorists, theorists subscribe. Unfortunately, the threat of a nuclear incident, accidental or purposeful, exists perhaps more than in recent years due to recent developments in the Korean Peninsula. Atomic weapons can can decimate a population from thermal blasts, but it also causes illness and death due to exposure from radiation. Although populated areas have experienced detonation only twice, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, nuclear reactor meltdowns and other events have occurred from time to time, such as Fukushima in 2011 and Chernobyl in 1986. In an atomic explosion, radiation is just one of the possible causes of casualties. Heat effects and kinetic energy damage near the blast will cause many deaths and injuries. Radiation released into the atmosphere, however, can have a devastating effect far from ground zero. A nuclear event produces fallout. Fallout is the particulate matter that is thrown into the air by the explosion. It can travel hundreds if not thousands of miles on the prevailing winds, coating fields, livestock, and people with radioactive material. The higher the fallout goes into the atmosphere, the farther it will travel downwind. This material contains elements that are hazardous if inhaled or ingested like radioiodine, cesium, and strontium. Even worse, fallout is absorbed by the animals and plants that make up our food supply. In large enough amounts, it can rapidly become life-threatening. Even in small amounts, it is hazardous to your long-term health. A nuclear power plant meltdown is usually less damaging than a nuclear blast as the radioactive material doesn't make it as high up in the sky as the mushroom cloud for an atomic bomb. The worst effects will be felt by those near the reactors. Lighter particulate particles like radioactive iodine will travel the farthest and are the main concern for those far from the actual explosion or meltdown. The level of exposure will depend on the distance the radioactive particles travel from the meltdown and how long it took to arrive. Radiation sickness. The medical effects of exposure are collectively known as radiation sickness or acute radiation syndrome. A certain amount of radiation exposure is tolerable over time, but your goal should be to shelter your group as much as possible. To accomplish this goal, we should First, clarify what the different terms for measuring the quantities of radiation mean. Scientists use terms such as RADs, REMS, Sieverts, Becquerels, or Curies to describe radiation amounts. Different terms are used when describing the amounts of radiation being given off by a source, the total amount of radiation that is actually absorbed by a human or animal, or the chance that a living thing will suffer health damage from exposure. Becquerels or Curies, these terms describe the amount of radiation that, say, a hunk of uranium gives off into the environment, named after scientists who were the first to work with and die from radioactivity. RADs, the amount of the radiation in the environment that is actually absorbed by a living thing. REMS or sieverts: the measurement of the risk of health damage from the radiation absorbed. This is somewhat confusing, so for our purposes, let's use RADs. A RAD, or radiation-absorbed dose, measures the amount of radiation energy transferred into some mass of material, typically humans. There's a a graphic here that you might want to go check out. An acute radiation dose, one received over a short period of time, is the most likely to cause damage. Below is a list of the effects on humans corresponding to the amount of radiation absorbed. For comparison, assume that you absorb about 0.6 rads per year from natural or household sources. These are the effects of different degrees of acute radiation exposure on humans. 30 to, 7, 30 to 70 rads is a mild headache or nausea with several hours of exposure, full recovery is expected. 70 to 150 rads, mild nausea and vomiting in a third of patients decreased wound healing and increased susceptibility to infection full recovery is expected 150 to 300 rads moderate nausea and vomiting in a majority of patients fatigue and weakness in half of victims infection and or spontaneous bleeding may occur due to a weakened immune system medical care will be required for many especially those with burns or wounds occasional deaths at 300 rads exposure may occur 300-500 to RADS, moderate nausea and vomiting, fatigue and weakness in most patients, diarrhea, stools, dehydration, loss of appetite, skin breakdown, and infection will be common. Hair loss is visible in most over time. At the high end of exposure, expect a 50% death rate. Over 500 RADS, spontaneous bleeding, fever, stomach, and intestinal ulcers, Bloody diarrhea, dehydration, low blood pressure, infections, and hair loss is anticipated in almost all patients. Death rates approach 1,000. The effects related to exposure may occur over time and symptoms are often not immediate. Hair loss, for example, will become apparent at 10 to 14 days. Deaths may occur weeks after the exposure. Protection against exposure to radiation. In the early going, your goal is to prevent exposure of over 100 rads. A radiation dosimeter will be useful to gauge radiation levels and is widely available for purchase. These items will give you an idea of your likelihood of developing developing radiation sickness. There are three basic ways of decreasing the total dose of radiation. Limit the time unprotected. Radiation absorbed absorbed is dependent on the length of exposure leave areas where high levels are detected and you are without adequate shelter the activity of radioactive particles decreases over time after 24 hours levels usually drop to one-tenth of the previous value or less increase the distance from the radiation radiation disperses over distance and effects decrease the farther away you are and provide a barrier a shelter will decrease the level of exposure so it is important to know how to construct one that will serve as a shield between your people and the radiation source. A dense material will give better protection than a light material. Different materials as barriers. The more material that you can use to separate yourself from fallout, the more likely you won't suffer ill effects. Barrier effectiveness is measured as having thickness. And what I mean having, and not like, it's like having, like dissecting it in half so having having thickness uh, i hope i'm coming across there uh this is the thickness of a particular shield material that will reduce gamma radiation the most dangerous kind by one half when you multiply the having (laughs) having having thickness i i just having trouble talking today you multiply your protection i have trouble talking almost every day Uh, For example, the halving thickness of concrete is 2.4 inches or 6 centimeters. A barrier of 2.4 inches of concrete will drop radiation exposure by one half. Doubling the thickness of the barrier again, like 4.8 inches of concrete drops it to one fourth, half by half, and tripling it 7.2 inches will drop it to one eighth, that's half by half by half, etc. 10 halving Halving thi- thicknesses. Oh my gosh! 24 inches of concrete will drop the total radiation exposure to one and one thousand twenty-fourths that of being out in the open. Here are the halving thicknesses of some common materials. Lead is 0.4 inches or 1.02 centimeters. Steel is one inch or 2.54 centimeters. Concrete 2.4 inches or 6.09 centimeters. Soil pack is 3.6 inches or 9.14 centimeters. Water is 7.2 inches or 18.28 centimeters. And wood is 11 inches or 27.94 centimeters. By looking at the list above, you can see that the same protection is given with one sixth the thickness of lead plating as that of concrete. Treating radiation sickness Eliminating external contamination with fallout dust is important before absorption occurs. This can be accomplished with simple soap and water. Scrub the area gently with, clean, with a clean wet sponge. Safely dispose of the sponge and dry the area thoroughly. Internal contamination is a more difficult issue. Emergency treatment involves dealing with the symptoms. Once the diagnosis is made, methods that may help include antibiotics to treat infections, fluids for dehydration, diuretics to flush out contaminants, and drugs to treat nausea. In severely ill patients, stem cell transplants and multiple transfusions are indicated but will not be options in an austere setting. This hard reality underscores the importance of having an adequate shelter to prevent excessive exposure. Protection is available against some of the long-term effects of radiation. Potassium iodide, known by the chemical symbol KI, taken orally can prevent radioactive iodine from damaging the specific organ that it targets, the thyroid gland. The usual adult dosage is 130 mg daily for 7-10 to 10 days or for as long as exposure is significant. For children, the dosage is 65 mg daily. KI is available in an FDA-approved commercial product called ThyroSafe. Taking KI 30 minutes to 24 hours prior to a radiation exposure will prevent the eventual epidemic of thyroid cancer that will result in no treatment if no treatment is given. Radiation from the 1986 Chernobyl disaster has accounted for more than 4,000 cases of thyroid cancer so far, mostly in children and adolescents. Therefore, if you only have a limited quantity of KI, treat the youngest first. Although there is a small amount of KI in ordinary iodized salt, not enough is present to confer any protection by ingesting it. It would take 250 teaspoons of household iodized salt to equal one potassium iodide tablet. Pets may also be at risk for long-term effects from radioactive iodine. It is recommended to consider half-tablet daily, for large dogs and one fourth tablet for small dogs and cats. Alternative Remedy for Radiation Exposure Don't depend on supplies of the drugs to be available for a nuclear event. Even the federal government will have little KI in reserve to give to the general population. In recent power plant meltdowns there was little or no potassium iodide to be found anywhere for purchase. If you find yourself without any KI consider this alternative. Pro-iodine solution, brand name Betadine. Paint eight milliliters of Betadine on the abdomen or forearm two to twelve hours prior to exposure and reapply daily. Enough should be absorbed through the skin to give protection against radioactive iodine in fallout. For children three years or older but under 150 pounds or 70 kilograms, apply four milliliters. Use 2 milliliters for toddlers and 1 milliliter for infants. This strategy should also work on animals. If you don't have a way to measure, remember that a standard teaspoon is about 5 milliliters. Discontinue the daily treatment after 3-7 to seven days or when radioiodine levels have fallen to safer levels. Be aware that those who are allergic to seafood will probably be allergic to anything containing iodine. Adverse reactions may also occur if you take medications such as diuretics and lithium. It is also important to note that you cannot drink tinctures of iodine or betadine. It is poisonous if ingested. Although many don't view a nuclear event as a likely disaster scenario, it is important to learn about all the possible issues that may impact your family in uncertain times. I think a, a good article maybe uh, coming up, and maybe I'll try to see if I can find one on Friday. Is uh, is how to uh, you know how to uh, uh, secure your home. You know, if you know that there is going to be a nuclear, if there's going to be radiation or something, and uh, how to secure it from, uh, you know, things coming in, radiation coming into your home, whether it's you know putting up, uh, covering up windows and things like that. Uh, if if I remember, I'll go uh, and try to pull that for, uh, you know, like an older article for Friday, uh, the day that I usually pull uh, an older article from the archives. But anyway, I think this is uh, important to note. I think, uh, yeah, when things happened with Fukushima, you couldn't find any potassium iodide anywhere. I know that it was flying off the shelves all over California, and people were panicking, and uh, Amazon and all that kind of stuff. Uh, So, you know, if this is something you consider, this is something that, uh, you know, you might want to buy some now. Uh, I know you can get it off of Amazon. Uh, Campingsurvival.com sells it. You can buy it there. You can link to them from uh, Prepper website. Um, But, yeah, I don't think that um, I'm not so concerned about a nuclear war uh, as much as, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, nuclear uh, reactors, you know, going down. And uh, I, I believe, I can't remember how many, but there's a ton of them on the Mississippi Uh, So if the, you know, and I know I'm going, I'm going there. If the new Madrid fault line ever goes, all the, all the, the nuclear factories or, you know, plants that are there, uh, not factories, but nuclear plants that are there are going to go too. And uh, I don't know, I don't know what kind of supports they have or, uh, you know, how they've been made or whatever, but, you know, could they... Uh, could they withstand uh, a new Madrid fault line earthquake and uh, in, in what that would cause? Probably doubt it. And so you would have a lot of problems over there. So not only are you dealing with the earthquake and all the effects of that. Uh, you know, possibly splitting the United States in half, but you have all that the nuclear uh, issue there, and uh, and in uh, all of it running down uh, the Mississippi if there's still water there and uh, still coming into the Gulf, and then the Gulf being uh, completely wasted, and so terrible. Uh, that would be terrible. But anyway, uh, something something to consider if you are near a, uh, a nuclear facility uh you know that, that might be this might be something you might want to take uh uh take a little bit more interest in, right? So go check out this article over at doomandbloom.net. Uh and like I said, there are some uh some links here and uh some graphics and things that you definitely want to check out. Alright, so thanks so much for listening to this uh the podcast today. Uh, again, going, going long. I'm not intentionally going long. I just, this just seems to be going really, really long. Uh, I know when I started out, I was aiming for like 30 minutes of podcast and, um, just keep seems like it's getting longer and longer. Um, anyway, so, uh, again, like I said, thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate uh, all the support out there with that. Choose to live a more self-reliant life Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.